Hi, this is the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan, and in this episode, I'm talking to Fiona Mulholland. Fiona is head of the English department at West Island School in Hong Kong. We discuss the best book Fiona's ever taught, read, or learnt in school and why, a text or unit that she's been keen to introduce to the classroom but isn't quite ready to do so yet, an introduction to her career to date and why she took the opportunity to teach abroad, the best and worst things about living and working in Hong Kong, the challenges brought about when West Island switched to the MYP, the most challenging part of being a head of department in Fiona's experience, and finally, the best advice she's ever been given or come across in terms of teaching. Thanks again to Fiona for giving up her valuable time to offer up lots of fantastic ideas and advice for people working or looking to work abroad. If you'd like to be kept abreast of chats like this, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast or simply follow me on Twitter at Chris Jordan HK. God. <laughs> All right, then, um, uh, Faye, what is the best book you've ever taught, read or learned in school and why? Oh, that is the hardest question to ask an English teacher, I think. Um, I kind of thought back to when I was at school and the book or the text that really resonated with me was when I did A-level. And it was, um, I think it's kind of quite a well-known text in in IB and in curriculums, but it was new to me and it was Translations by Brian Creel. And I remember reading this play, which was, you know, ostensibly about a little small Irish village in the late 1800s and it was having its name changed because of the anglicization of Irish place names and I remember walking outside that class and you know walking in Derry slash Londonderry and seeing these road signs that have got graffiti on them because they've got that prefix seeing Irish names kind of spray painted out and it kind of hit me for the first time literature really does have that real world context and it wasn't so much the fact that I was Irish living in Northern Ireland. It was that realisation that what we can do in the classroom really does have that connection with what we can have in real life. And that's something that kind of stuck with me. And in all the texts that I choose and in all the texts that I've subsequently taught, I've always tried to keep that in mind. How can we have that message that students are going to go beyond the classroom and see it in their lives? Not literally in their kind of their culture all the time, but in their relationships or their experiences. So whenever I choose text, I, can, I kind of think that's always paramount in my mind. And there's some texts I kind of keep going back to in terms of the classics. Um, I think Othello is one of my go-tos because I love the interplay of jealousy and the idea of manipulation. And I think everybody's got a little bit of Iago in them, which is what I always tell to the students. <laughs> As much as we may not like to agree, um, I think that's the character that has that universal relevance or re resonance for me. But increasingly, as I've taught IB, I've recognised the need to go away from those classics or those favourites or those traditionals. And I've really tried to experiment with female writers and writers from different cultures and contexts. The two recent texts that I really enjoyed were, um, it was a play by Lynn Nottage, it's called Sweat set in middle America, um, kind of the Rust Belt, and it tells the tale of factory employees. And it's a really lovely meditation on working class culture, the idea of race. It's set in kind of the Trump era. So it looks at these really 
kind of relevant and I think resonant ideas about capitalism. And again, for students in this international context who love econ, who love business, but maybe necessarily not necessarily from that social background, it gives them a window into it. Um, in terms of YA fiction, again, not always just about IB. I found a text last year called um, Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Ribbon. And it's from the perspective of a Filipino-American boy who finds out that his cousin in the Philippines has disappeared. And it's this exploration of the drugs in the Philippines, of Duterte's war on drugs. And again, that sense of a culture clash between someone who is Filipino in nationality, but also has this Western idea. And for the students in year nine who we taught it to, they saw themselves in the text. They could identify, mm. they could articulate and say, oh, yeah, this is actually something that I know about. And this is something that my family have a, a viewpoint on, or even the students in Hong Kong where we teach, they often have an experience of a Filipino friend, Filipino helper perhaps. So that currency that they bring to it is, is what I really enjoy. The fact that I can also learn something from their experiences, even though I'm the one teaching the text. Um, as always, I'll kind of link to like any of the text that you've mentioned there, but there's, yeah, there's at least like one, two, three books I've never even heard of. I think that the Filipino one, particularly in Hong Kong, is such a like a valuable experience, I think, because uh, just to kind of completely copy what you just said then, Faye, like the 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 kind of the the presence of like Filipino people in Hong Kong culture is is definitely sort of inescapable, but perhaps not as um it's not really as, as talked about or it's not as um, discussed in schools as much as it could be. So, yeah, I'll definitely kind of have to look that one up myself as well to have a read of it. Another um, text we've actually introduced at IB this year, which is very specifically about the movement of people. Um, it's a text by Jenny Erpenbeck called Go Went Gone. It focuses on the movement of um, asylum seekers from perhaps maybe the African continent to Berlin, mm. so about 2005. But again, it raises really interesting ideas about the responsibility of people, the right to abode, government responsibility. And that always comes back to, as you said, that context of Hong Kong. Mm. And those uncomfortable conversations about who does have the right to be a permanent citizen? Why do some people get that ID card, but some don't? And who really is kind of helping the economy and the ability for us to go and do our jobs? Well, jobs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, for context, it doesn't matter how long a, um, like a domestic worker lives in Hong Kong, does it? Like they never get given the permanent ID card. Whereas if you're a teacher from the UK, let's say that it's only seven years, which is, yeah, like quite a hotly debated topic um, in recent times. Um, you've talked about like a few things there that you do um, at uh, IB level is there ever has there ever been a unit or a text that you've wanted to introduce to the classroom or you're planning to that you just haven't got around to or for whatever reason haven't had the opportunity to do so yeah there's there's probably I'm, I'm teaching Lang Lit at the moment so I'm always really conscious of not just the literary text but the non-literary and with Lang Lit there's a real opportunity to, to talk about things conceptually or to talk about those big issues. And I've done a little bit of reading around, I suppose, eco-criticism, mm. but it's still relatively new. And I suppose I haven't introduced it yet because I haven't quite got the foundations or the confidence with that yet or the body of work. Um, there was a really good anthology um, I read. It's just called The American Anthology of Eco-Poetry. Um, and it goes all the way from like Whitman 
to Thoreau, but then kind of brings it to modern. So it's that sense that it's not just environmental poetry, but it's looking at it through the lens of the natural world. Mm. Um, there was, a, again, just doing a little bit of research, I found this collection. It's called The Winter the Wolf. That Winter the Wolf Came by Juliana um, Zapara. And it's poetry, but it's written in a very prosaic form. Um, and it's from this point of view, again, of this mother, but looking from a small town about the impact of oil prices, about the impact of environmental issues from a very personal lens. But then that kind of springboards out into, I guess, our responsibility and our need to be aware of them. And I think given the generation of the students that we're teaching, this is something that they're so attuned to, that they're so aware of. And if we can kind of capitalize on that, if we can look at something that has that relevance and topical aspect, it can also go beyond English. We can bring it in through the CAS program. We can link it to services learning. Mm. Um, so that's something I'd like to introduce, but just haven't gotten around to it. And then in terms of novels that I've read recently, it's a little bit old, but it's um, Ocean Vong, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. So it mm. came out a couple of years ago. Um, semi-autobiographical, um, Vietnamese writer, and he's, the frame of the novel is he's writing uh, a letter to his mother who came over from Vietnam with her gran and him fleeing the war, but she's illiterate. And due to the trauma of the war, due to the PS, you know, due to the PSTD, she has quite kind of a, an abusive relationship with him in many ways, particularly when he's younger. So she hits and she expresses her feelings, unfortunately, in that medium. And it's about him almost in a sense forgiving her but recognizing the trauma, but also trying to articulate his own feelings as he kind of also struggles with his sexuality, struggles with being uh, a mixed race, struggles with being a Vietnamese American boy in a culture perhaps that is not that most accommodating and welcoming to him. So I think lots of really interesting ideas, again, about cross-culture, about generation, about relationships. So I can see it in the curriculum, just haven't got around to it. Exciting. That eco, the eco criticism is definitely one which I think I've been banging the drum with kind of um, texts that look like femininity or feminism and stuff like that in recent times. And not to say that that isn't obviously like an important subject, but I feel like I've done it to death at this point and I need to bring something in, which is a little bit more, um, yeah, of the times with regard to sort of like, so I think eco-criticism or environmentalism is something maybe which I'll try and bring in myself. So I'll have a look at that. I'll have a look at those texts um, um, in, the, in the coming months, I guess. Um, we obviously mentioned a few times there that um, you or we are in Hong Kong at the moment. Um, can you give us like a brief introduction to like how um, teaching kind of brought you to Hong Kong in the first place? So I did my um, my undergrad at Queen's University in Belfast. And it's interesting looking back at it, I really enjoyed it. But particularly now as an IB teacher, I just recognised just how traditional it was. I had my unit on American literature, which was Melville. I had my post-colonial, which was essentially King Solomon's Minds. I had my Shakespeare. Um, and it's really interesting to, you know, go back and look at what the course offers now. And even in the space of the X how many years that I've done it, the course has radically changed. And I think it's for the better. And I think that when I see the English teachers who are coming in, they are definitely having a, a broader perhaps degree experience than, than we are. 
not to say that we don't keep learning. And I think the conversation that we had earlier about continuing to read texts and continuing to make sure we're exploring new ones means that we're always keeping fresh, which is great. Um, mm. When I went across to Glasgow to do my PGCE, I stayed there for a few years. Um, and I really enjoyed working in that context because coming you know, from Northern Ireland, I did very much the UK curriculum. But doing the Glasgow PGCA, I got to see the experience of hires instead of A-levels, which was great. And then when I moved internationally, I got the experience of doing IBs, IB as well. So I feel really lucky in the sense that I've seen those very different, I guess, upper school programs and how they can kind of stretch and challenge students. And I hope that I'm able to take the best out of all of them. Mm. Um, I guess what took me to Hong Kong, um, I was working at the Middle East when I finished my PGC. I did three years in a school in Bahrain, which was great. Um, but that school did A-level. And I remember looking at what the next move would be and hearing about the program that was IB. I did my research, I did my homework, and ESF kept coming up as a school in Asia that had a very good reputation. So targeted my letter, um, did my homework, and I was lucky enough to get uh, an initial post in KG5, which is another ESF school. Mm. Um, I took on the responsibility for Key Stage 3 coordinator while I was there um, and really enjoyed, really enjoyed just being part of um, a really dynamic international school. Uh, ESF, for anyone maybe who isn't aware, they're a, I guess they're the English School Foundations and they have seven secondary schools uh, around Hong Kong. Um, and each one's got a slightly different character, even though we may kind of follow the same curriculum. It's a little bit like a demographic. Where they are located geographically means that you've got a slightly different demographic of students who come there. Um, and that's interesting because I moved across then to West Island um, as second department and then eventually head of faculty. And it's same, same, but different <laughs> in, in a very good way. So I was able to take a lot of the, the skills that I'd learned from KG5 and, and apply them. But also it kept me, it made me really mindful that you always have to adapt to the people who are in front of you. And I think that's the same, not just for a role. That's every class. You always have to make sure you're adapting to the students that you have, not to the students that you think you have or that you, that you used to have. Um, and also having worked at KG5, one of the best things was those professional relationships that I've also taken with me. So I still am in contact with a lot of the people who work there, people who worked at KG5 have subsequently moved to other schools. And that network that's been built up is, is I think, one of the big strengths and one of the things that actually attracted me to Hong Kong in the first place. What's the, so the, the kind of the big, um, it feels like the two options at the moment for people looking internationally are either the Middle East or the, the Far East, basically. So um, you've obviously mentioned Bahrain there and then you're now in Hong Kong. What's the main, what's, what's the main differences between the two? Like what's the best thing and about the worst thing about living in Hong Kong in relation to, you know, the Middle East? I think where, wherever you are internationally, you have to be mindful that you are coming into someone else's culture. And I think that would be the, the big thing that I'd be aware, I'd kind of remind anyone who's thinking about teaching internationally to, to be mindful of. So it's about recognising what the values of that place are, and be those social, be those religious, be those political, and you have to be mindful of those um, because that's what you're signing up for whenever you work internationally. And as much as we're working within the English medium, you have to be aware of the context of the students that we're teaching and the context of the community that we're joining as well. 
Um, what's the biggest difference? Um, I think it's unfair, to, you know, Hong Kong has got so much going for it in terms of the, the variety, in terms of a personal experience. The Middle East was fantastic in terms of the, the lifestyle that it offered, but perhaps it was a very small place in terms of the, the cultural mm. life that it offered as well. It was also very hot. And as someone with pale skin, freckles, that was a that was kind of <laughs> a make or break as well. Um, thing I love about Hong Kong is you've got your cosmopolitan city, you've got your high rises, you've got your um, nightlife, but within 30 minutes you can get to a beach, you can get on a mm. trail in another 30 minutes. So you really do have a little bit of everything in um, in a very compact and accessible way. And I think that's one of the big pros and one of the big draws for it. Um, professionally, um, I think, as I've mentioned, ESF really is a big draw as well because they have this pool of resources that you as, a, as an individual teacher, but also as a leader can draw on. Um, and also as kind of quite a, a big organization, they do have access to CPD. They do have resources that can give you opportunities and they can support you in your kind of development as a teacher as well. And I think that's something that can be really beneficial when you're working for a, an organization that has this reach, maybe rather than perhaps just an individual school, which can sometimes be quite small, which also has its benefits. Mm. Is, there, is there an inspectorate in Bahrain? Is there like a government inspectorate or not? Um, the Ministry of Education, which does sound a little bit like a big brother speak. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what, what we did was we would submit um, our curriculums to the Ministry of Education for approval. Okay, so it's not, so there, I've heard about like in certain parts of, I think it's the UAE actually, like they, the inspectorate's a lot more hands-on than perhaps um, in other places. Like certainly in Hong Kong, there's no, yeah. the, the EDB isn't particularly kind of no. um, invasive in any way if you're in international school. Oh, I was working for, for quite an established school, St. Christopher's, so, um, and it was also Bahrain is a much smaller place, perhaps, than than the UAE. And in the UAE, there's a lot of startup schools. I think there's a lot of school kind of coming up. So the inspection may be a little bit more rigorous. Also, with the, the Middle East, a lot of inspectors, in order to maybe distinguish yourself from other schools, they may invite inspectors in, in order to get a certain mm. or a certain approval, in order to kind of make themselves more marketable or more yeah. appealing. Yeah. I see. Um, you um, kind of in recent years, like West Island has switched to the middle years program within the IB, which um, um, means kind of uh, taking on um, or like uh, kind of satisfying the accreditation that, that comes with the IB's expectations of the program and stuff. Um, what was that like? What, what kind of challenges did it bring to switch from the old Key Stage 3 or whatever it was called curriculum to the one that's now been in place for, for three or so years? I think the biggest challenge with anything that involves change is, is having that kind of buy-in and making mm. sure people understand why it's happening, how it's going to happen, and also what the outcome is going to be. They, they need to see that it's worth it. So we spent a lot of time actually investing in the why you know reading the reading the principles into practice you know going to lineric's and webinars understanding what was meant by a, a kind of a concept and a, and a global issue and a global context and a state of inquiry mm. and really trying to figure out what would this mean for us 
does our entire curriculum have to be thrown out? Do we have to start from scratch or can we find an alignment? And I think the the bigger, so the more that we dug and the more that we looked, we could actually see that there is overlap. And with the MYP, in some ways, it was looking at it through a different lens. But when you kind of put it into focus, a lot of the ideas are similar. Um, so we may have been doing inquiry approaches, but we didn't call it inquiry. We may have been looking at, you know, the themes in our units, but we didn't call them concepts. So for, for us, I think it was the idea of adapting to a language of learning and being very explicit in what this kind of language is and being explicit in our approach rather than necessarily changing everything. And I think that was uh, kind of reassured a lot of people. Um, we still, when we think we still do, we get very tangled when it comes to statements of inquiry. And when we, we started off, we probably looked at it the wrong way around. We began with the statement of inquiry that we were going to frame all of our learning around. But actually, we need to kind of backward map again and think, well, mm. what is it really, you know, start with that kind of global, um, that global context. What is it that we want them to learn? And then, so why is it that we want them to learn this? And then we can think about the what and the how. And once mm. we made the switch, and I think that switch came around year two, and um, sometimes it's only when you live it, it's when you do it, that's when you see it a little bit more clearly as well. Um, I think one thing that, that is good about the MIP is it's kind of reminded us that it's not just about your subject content, it is about holistic aspects of student learning. Um, and the kind of the cornerstone of the ATLs is the strength of the MIP program, but that also does prove a challenge because how best do we teach this attitude to learning? Do we make it very explicit or do we make it implicit? How do we balance this against the subject? Do we assess it? How do students actually evaluate it? Do we need to evaluate this? Um, and initially, again, we felt it was a little bit tokenistic and a little bit superficial how we've done it. And taking a step back, what we've realized is rather than trying to do everything at once, we've identified maybe two to three key ATLs. We've aligned them with the final outcome. And then it's been a very, very clear link as to how to develop this skill and, and marry it alongside the, the subject skills that we're delivering in the unit. So I can add, as you said, we're, we're kind of in our fourth year now. And I think we're at the stage where we're developing a, a strong and robust, but I would definitely say it's developing because it's always a process of review. It's always a process of reflection. Um, it's always a process of adaptation. And that's very in line with the MYP philosophy. It's not, it's not a static curriculum. It's a framework. Mm. Um, that in itself is a challenge. But I think that can also be kind of quite invigorating, the, the reminder that we do need to continually reflect. We do need to seek ideas. And we can make those changes. Yeah, I, th I think... Um, it's interesting whenever you get a load of teachers together on like a CPD day or um, uh, any situation, whether it's a staff room or whatever. And if, if if some teachers have worked in a school that's had MYP for 10, 20 years, you still find that some of them say, you know, we don't really talk about the ATLs. We've never talked about the ATLs. Whereas some teachers, it's 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 kind of emblazoned all over the curriculum, no matter where you go. So that's another challenge that the IB, um, they're not exactly the most direct in the way that they suggest that you use or implement the ATLs or the concepts or the statements of inquiry or even inquiry itself. I think inquiry means different things to different people within the IB, but 
Um, yeah, I think they yeah. use that word framework deliberately. Mm. Um, so you can interpret. And, and what I would always say is as long as there's consistency within the faculty that you're working in, and as long as there's a, a coherent idea of what it means for yeah. area for that school, then that's that's going to be the, the key point because then you're going to have that consistent um, opportunities and experiences for the students. Mm. And it definitely is kind of, in theory, it's hard not to see the positives behind the initiatives. But then on, on the other hand, I have heard like the most kind of another side of the argument where I've heard teachers talk about how like IB have monopolized international teaching by kind of using this that that term framework when actually they're not really giving that much support to schools and things like that. But yeah, it depends it depends where you stand on that particular kind of like uh, debate, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah. Again, bringing it back to English, I don't know if you agree, but I think we naturally lend ourselves to this mm. this shift for us. I don't feel it was as seismic perhaps as other content driven subjects. And and I know that I've spoken to people maybe in science or in maths where there is much more concern about, well, by doing an inquiry into this, are we actually losing that subject integrity? So I do think it's probably a wider issue in terms Mm. of school school experience. But for English, I still feel that we can balance them. Yeah, I think so. They, They are like coming back to what you said a moment ago, like it's kind of what you make of it, like how you interpret it within the department um, um, and make the most of it, I guess. Yeah. Um, as head of department, like you've, or head of faculty, as you mentioned um, there, what do you find to be the most difficult part of it or the most challenging part of it, I should say? Um, I think head of faculty really is about making sure that, that it's the highest standards of teaching and learning. And it's making sure that students have the best learning experience and the best learning environment. So that's the challenge. <laughs> but yeah. that's what I really enjoy about the role as well, because as head of faculty, you you get to see teaching and learning. You get to go into the classrooms. You get to speak to the students. You get to hear what they have to say. You get a hand in guiding the curriculum and kind of setting the vision of what the, the faculty is going to follow. But I think, obviously, when you're talking about the best teaching and learning, there is going to be inherent change or shifts or movements in practice. And any school change is something that needs to be managed and needs to be managed effectively. Um, Our school has had a lot of change and it's not just within the faculty and curricular movements, you know, policies from above and PRD reflection, how we kind of communicate with service learning. And that really feels overwhelming. And when people feel overwhelmed, um, when people feel change is happening to them rather than being part of it, they don't buy in. So I think the biggest Mm -hmm. challenge for me is making sure people feel part of something, that they feel heard, that they feel that what they're going to be doing is meaningful. So it's, and I guess this has been my leadership style, is, is I think listening is really, really important. And I think giving a voice to people and providing a safe space for that. You know, so some ways I've done that is maybe I'll have a, a kind of a town, town hall style morning, you know, drop by my room. This is the issue. If you'd like to come and speak to me, then the door is open. Alternatively, kind of Google questionnaire forms, anonymous, so people can really say what they want to think. And also sometimes just about going and having those individual conversations um, and talking to people and letting them actually kind of talk to you. Because I think I think for me, communication is 
is the most important thing in, in building a team. And I really do think for me, it's about teamwork as well. Even though I might be the head of that team, I need the people around me to, to feel valued and to feel that they're part of it. Um, and I think also as, as head of faculty, you have to recognize what your leadership style is. And you have to listen to that. You have mm. to kind of be who you are and not try and assume a certain way that you think that you should be. Mm. But also you do have to be flexible and recognize that your, your approach is the one that may need to be adapted rather than asking other people in your team to adapt to you. So it's it's that kind of sense of knowing when to lean in, knowing when to bend, but then also knowing when you've kind of got to go to people and make things happen. So I, I think I think that's the part that I enjoy as well. I really mm. like those professional conversations with people. And I don't, I know some people call them difficult conversations, but I always think that they're productive. So it's only difficult if something good doesn't come out of it at the end. Mm. Um, I think it's also about being visible with the students as well. So it's recognizing that your role is also for students to, to see you, to kind of recognize you as someone that they can go to and approach. Um, and also, one one thing that I initially thought, I don't know if it's the same as you, is when I first took post, I thought I had to do everything. You know, my job as head of faculty mm. is to do everything, to plan all the lessons, to make all sure the resources. And actually, it's about recognizing the talent in your team and mm. give people opportunities and celebrate their success. Um, and it took me a while to realize part of being a good leader is actually knowing when to delegate and when to step back and let other people step up. So, yeah, challenging. but. I think I enjoy it. I think I enjoy it. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with that kind of the the the, the dynamic or the parasam, whatever the word is, between to what extent do you get involved and to what extent do you kind of step back and or delegate rather like the 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 um the work, but also like how do you to what extent do you need to set an example? To what to what extent do you need to like allow kind of the the culture of the department to flourish and you um, to adapt to it? It's interesting as well. Whenever it's because obviously the ESF is um, inherently different from maybe a school which is you know a standalone school which is um, you know we've got plenty of those in Hong Kong as well. But because I feel like for the ESF, you're it, well, in any in any school, you're managing up, of course, but you're managing up with people who are also managing up with people who are also managing up, which can be quite complicated. So it is fascinating to see or to hear what it's like in in in, in different schools um, and how the dynamic works. So, um, but yeah, it is it is particularly nice when you've got a team of people that you know you can rely on and 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 you can kind of. Um, you can depend upon to have those uh, fierce conversations. I've heard them referred to as before, but uh, <laughs> those kind of productive conversations. Yeah. Um, um, finally, then, what's in your kind of your teacher training or kind of your practice? What's the um, best advice you've ever been given? Well, I think I think teacher training is a little bit like driving a car or learning to drive a car you you might pass your test um when you get your license but you don't really know how to drive until you've been doing it for a couple of years mm. so I think the best advice is for me it's about actually re- teaching teaching is about relationships and I think that's how I'd sum it up 
And the first relationship that you've got to think about is the relationship with your students. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, you know, build that up, get to know them, spend time connecting with them, you know, use your subject, particularly as English teachers, we're so, it's so easy for us to, to find a way in. You know, we can talk about what are they like to read, what are their interests, we can pull in newspaper articles, we can pull in clips, we can watch things that appeal to them. So that relationship with your students is, is kind of paramount because they need to respect you, they need to feel that, that you're invested in them, and they need to have trust in you for that really to, to be kind of the best environment for them and for you. Um, I think then also you've got to also work on the relationship with your colleagues. So reach out and connect with the people around you, connect with the people in the department, ask for help, ask for support, ask for ideas, because people are always willing to share. Um, it's really easy in teaching to close your classroom door and to become an island. It's really easy to get bogged down in your admin and what you have to do. Um, so don't let yourself become that, you know. Make sure that, again, as well, when you have found that kind of mentor, pay it back and become mm-hmm. that mentor to someone else. Seek out that person who may be struggling. Remember that might have been you at some point and kind of just connect with them. And I think also, you know, the internet's fantastic at the moment. Twitter, seek other people beyond your context. You know, get online, find those people who are posting that you like. Um, watch CPD online, keep reading, keep learning, and connect with that bigger teaching community out there. And then finally, you've got to focus on yourself because teaching is a great career. It's a great occupation, but it's something that is intense. It is stressful. Mm. It's pressured. So you have to make sure you find those moments to recharge, to reflect, and you have to focus on your own well-being in order to be the best that you can. Mm. The, re- the relationship thing definitely kind of makes a lot of sense in the sense that like, even if I had an argument with someone or I'm just in a generally bad mood, I think that the, the best kind of antidote to that um, is kind of, yeah, if you teach one class and it's a particularly good class or even if it's just a, a mediocre class I've, I've soon find that there's something cathartic about teaching which um i don't know if it's just like the kind of the inherent social um setting of like being able to speak to people for a living and kind of canvas opinion and stuff like that but it definitely does something to to my mood at least if you don't enjoy like uh, communicating or um speaking to like young people like that then yeah the job isn't really for you but it's it is definitely the most enjoyable part of the job and I would agree like those relationships are pretty pretty vital as well I remember hearing I can't I can never remember who said the quote but it's something like um they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care or something like that Mm -hmm. which is quite nice um yeah. Okay. Well, um, the only thing that it remains for me to say, uh, Fee, is thank you very much for giving up your uh, Thursday morning to chat with me. And uh, um, despite you, you kind of prefaced the chat by saying that you might be not as um, with it as usual because you're on like a little bit of like medicine, but I thought you were, uh, yeah, very, very uh, eloquent as always. You might, you might need to give some context that I've hurt my ankle, everyone. It's not. <laughs> medicate <laughs> <laughs> quite right yeah um yeah so thank you very much for giving up your time no thanks so much chris lovely to chat